You guys doing well? Yeah. Oh, that's better. That's much better. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. You guys are the later crowd, you know. You guys have plenty of time to drink a lot of coffee and wake up. So if you're not, I'll wake you up, okay? If you're not awake, I'll wake you up. Here we go. So life without lack, Psalm 23. We've been working our way through Psalm 23. Abounding grace for my waywardness is what we're talking about this weekend. Grab your sermon notes out. And follow along, you'll see at the top of the sermon notes, part of our intro, if there is nothing more life liberating and soul satisfying than knowing Christ, which I'm convinced of that, think about that thought, there's nothing more life liberating or soul satisfying than knowing Christ. I'm convinced of that more than ever before to this day, I'm just, I'm stoked about the reality of that. And I'm here week in, week out to convince you of, of that truth. And so if there is nothing more life liberating or soul satisfying than knowing Christ, then why, why would we ever look anywhere else? And yet we do. We do more often than we would like to admit. And, and evidence, evidence that we find ourselves wandering and looking elsewhere, following other shepherds, rather than the good shepherd, is that we tend to be bitter over the past, we complain about the present, and that we, we worry about the future. And it's because, as I said, we're, we're following other shepherds other than the good shepherd. Only the good shepherd can bring contentment to us. And when we, when we put all of our meaning, hope, and happiness in other shepherds, it's going to be seen through our bitterness over the past, complaining about the present, and worry about the future. My favorite verse from Robert Robinson's hymn that we just sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, it was the very last, the last verse. It says, Oh, to God, how great a debtor. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. You guys know what a fetter is? Chickens and birds have fetters. <laughs> they don't? That's not what? Fetter, F-E-T-T-E-R? Uh, fetter is actually is a shackle. Let me read that again. So let thy goodness like a fetter, like a shackle, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Beautiful, amazing song, hymn, really reflects our hearts and the struggle that we have in our hearts. And so we've now landed on uh, this portion of the 23rd Psalm. Remember last week we talked about even though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because why? Because you are with me. Notice the transition. Remember I talked about the transition. As you walk through 23rd Psalm, first half of it is talking about God, and then it transitions right here at this point, transitions from talking about God to talking to God. Intimacy with God. I love it. It's amazing. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I face times of hopelessness and despair, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And the section we're looking at this morning is this, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now let me remind you of what we talked about uh, last weekend. It was a very common practice in Palestine for shepherds during the summer months to lead their sheep on, on long treks through difficult and dangerous valleys onto the, the high country summer ranges for better pasture. And the fears of the sheep were dispelled by the, the two implements carried by the shepherd, a rod and a staff, by which he would govern his flock. So the rod and staff can be broadly categorized as tools of protection and guidance. The rod protected sheep from, uh, against predators, but it also protected them from themselves. It disciplined wandering sheep. And the staff was a guiding tool with a hook on one end to secure a sheep around its chest to keep it on track and to pull it back into the fold. And so only the two tools together provided comfort to the sheep. Now, keep in mind, sheep, you probably know this, sheep are very dumb and defenseless animals. You guys knew that, didn't you? And uh, have, I mean, think, think of the fact that they're defenseless, very defenseless. Have you ever heard of a killer sheep? Oh no, killer sheep are on the loose in our neighborhood. Never heard of that, have you? No, 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 no. No, have you ever heard of anyone being killed by a sheep? That sheep murdered him. No, it's not going to happen. And uh, not, not a very good mascot for a football team. The fighting lambs. Let's go get them. Not, not a good one. And sheep are not only defenseless. By the way, I know that they're defenseless because my parents over here off of 43rd Avenue in Union Hills had some sheep, some ewe lambs, along with a ram. The rams typically will protect them, but we had about uh, five or six coyotes come into their pasture and took out the lamb. It was vicious. Or took out the, the, the ram and then began to take out the sheep one by one. So they're really defenseless in so many different ways. And they're, they're also... Uh, they're very dumb, dumb animals. And so it's interesting that, that the Bible would refer to us as sheep. I mean, I think it fits really well. Uh, I mean, we're defenseless and we're really dumb. And what's interesting is that if, if one ewe lamb gets frightened, the rest of the herd can be, can be frightened without even knowing why they're frightened. One runs and the rest run right after it. Just like, oh, what's going on? What's happening? We don't know what's happening, but we're... We're afraid, we're afraid, we're frightened, you know, we're... And so, so if one lamb is frightened and, and runs off of a cliff, the others will follow almost as if to say, that doesn't look so bad as they fall to their death. Sorry, I had to throw that one in there. That was, that was bad, wasn't it? That was bad. So, so here's the three questions we're looking at uh, as it relates to this idea of his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Why are we prone to waywardness? What would cause us to be wayward in our relationship with God? When what we have in him, a life without lack, contentment in him. And the next question is, what is God's abounding grace for our waywardness? What does he do? What's well, the rod and the staff? What, what does that mean? 
And then the third question is, what difference will this make in my life? Well, it should comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that's, that's where we're headed with this study. Let's first pray once again. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray, and then we will read our text and work through these notes. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. No cherished words have brought more comfort, courage, and ultimately contentment like Psalm 23. And what we have in you, our shepherd, our good shepherd, is infinitely and eternally better than anything we have, we have or don't have in life. Open our eyes. Open our eyes that we may see these wonderful things from your word and satisfy us with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days for your glory in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. I've asked you to begin to memorize uh, Psalm 23. I hope you're doing that. It'll mean much more to you as we work through it. We've got about three more weeks or so to work through this psalm. Uh, Also, uh, Phil, our media guy, has made available to you to help you to uh, memorize the 23rd Psalm our screensavers that you can find on our, the sermon uh, par- portion of our website. If you go there, you can download these screensavers and that way you, you're, every day you, you see these words before your eyes and you can reflect on them and think deeply of them. But let's read Psalm 23 together in a loud. Are you guys ready? Nice and loud with a lot of enthusiasm. Here we go, one, two, three. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Beautiful absolutely stunning psalm for us as we have been reflecting on it and meditating on it. So here's the first question. How, how are we prone to waywardness? When you think of people who maybe were at one point walking with the Lord and now they're no longer walking with the Lord, what, what happened? What's going on? If Christ is that life-liberating and soul-satisfying, why would anybody in their right mind walk away or be wayward. Doesn't make sense to me. And yet we can all tend to do that. Here's the first thing, it's on your notes. We're often deceived by the good days, the prosperity of life. We're deceived by the good days, the prosperity of life. We actually think that something in creation will satisfy us more than the creator is what we do, that's our thinking, it's, and it's deception, we're deceived. Hebrews 13, five through six, the writer here says, keep your life free from the love of money. You could actually put anything in there, money, uh, the love of anything that's created. Keep your life free from loving anything more than you love God, is what he's saying. And he goes on and he says, and be content with what you have, for he has said, talking about God, our savior, our good shepherd, for he has said, 
he will never leave us or forsake us. When you understand what you have in Christ Jesus, oh my goodness, why would you be duped thinking that you're gonna actually be happier by pursuing something in creation as opposed to the creator? But we all do it, and oftentimes it's good things that we turn into ultimate things, good things like a marriage or kids or, or job or career, money, any number of things, but we begin to love those things more than we, we love him. James 1.16 and 17 says, do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. So it's interesting that he would say, don't be deceived because every good and perfect gift comes from God. In other words, all the good things that you have in your life, those are gifts from God and pointers to God. And that our, that our, our joy and our praise and our adoration should not terminate on those good gifts, but roll on up to God and in thankfulness, in gratitude, in adoration, knowing that he's even better. If, if this gift is this good, that God, you're even better than what you have given me. They are gifts from God and pointers to God. Don't be deceived is what he says. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. In other words, don't replace God with the gifts and the many gifts that he has given us. Here's the second thing. So the first thing is that uh, how are we prone to waywardness, deceived by the good days, prosperity of life, and the next one is we're disillusioned by the bad days, adversity of life. We become disillusioned by the really hard, hardness of life, difficulties of life, hardship of life, adversity in life. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. You guys familiar with this verse? Anybody? What is the next part? Be not dismayed. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. You guys know what that word dismayed means? It means disillusioned. It means, uh, means disillusioned. It means perplexed. Why would we be perplexed? Because why would you be afraid? Because we go through times although the Bible tells me that God is loving, wise, and in control. It doesn't seem like it. Sometimes it can overwhelm us. We can look back in our life and we can look at circumstances and situations that go, oh my goodness. If you're loving, wise, and in control, it doesn't look like it. And that's why he says, fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. Do not be disillusioned. Do not be perplexed. And he goes on, he says, for I am your God. I'm in control. I'm still in control. I'm still looking out for your best interest. No matter what it looks like, I'm still working is what he's saying here. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We also know that another reason why we shouldn't become disillusioned by bad days, uh, thinking that somehow God uh, is ignoring us or he's not working anymore, but also God will use these bad days, these difficult days, to discipline us. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 says, God disciplines us as a father disciplines his son he loves. And he's talking about hardship here. He's talking to a group of people that are under really horrible hardship, horrible difficulties. And he says, hey, God disciplines us, yeah, difficulties are coming into our life because our father loves us and, and he's disciplining us. And, and every parent here knows this. You know that if you, if you do not bring carefully controlled, unpleasant consequences into your children's lives, they will go out into the world and bring far more painful and harmful results onto themselves later. And so inflicting minor sadness now 
avoids great despair later. And so listen to me. This is what I know about our our daddy, our father in heaven, our good shepherd. Listen, he will always, he will always sacrifice our temporal good for our eternal good. He always has eternity in mind. And you may be devastated by the loss of something that's temporal. Keep in mind, it's temporal. It won't last forever. He's wanting you to get a hold of and to grasp more fully the eternal and all that he has for you. You also have to keep in mind something else that can create this disillusionment is this, is that um, sometimes I've heard people say this, and this is what really bothers them when they go through hard times, is God punishing me? And I'll say, are you a believer in Christ? Have you given your life to him? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, well, then he's not punishing you. It's not punishment. All of your punishment for your sin was placed upon Christ on the cross. It's not double jeopardy here. He's not getting double payment. So hardship for believers is not, listen to me, it's not punitive. It's purifying. He's purifying us. And it's because he loves us. And he wants us to experience holiness or wholeness in him. And, and it's, it's amazing. If you begin to get a glimpse of this holiness and wholeness that he's wanting to, to produce in us, the only way really is through difficulties and hardship. You, you will, it's breathtaking to see what he's wanting to do in our lives. Now, how do you overcome that? So if, in fact, how are we prone to waywardness, deceived by the good days, prosperity of life, disillusioned by the bad days, uh, adversity of life? Here's what we need to keep in mind, and we'll talk further about this, re- really emphasize this throughout the message, but here's the next couple fill in the blanks. He is better, this is what I have to remind myself, he is better than our best days and bigger than our worst days. He's better than our best days. So tell me about your best day. What's your best day? What's the best thing that's ever happened to you? What's the best experience you've ever had in you? That's a dim glimpse of what you're going to experience in him. You need to know that. He's better than your best days. He's better than your best days. In fact, that's a gift from him and a pointer to him. He's even more satisfying. And he's bigger than your worst days. And what this will do, this will lead to perseverance in adversity and thankfulness in prosperity. You see, you need to be reminded, I do, day in and day out, you were created by God for God to give glory to God. Oftentimes I hear people say, I was created for this, and it's some kind of temporal thing, and certainly we're wired up to do certain things really well. I understand that. But ultimately, ultimately, beyond that, you were created to give glory to God. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And when we are most satisfied in him, we are crucified to this world. Good days, bad days, ugly days, we can still find our satisfaction in him and give glory to him regardless of what's going down in our life. So think about that. No matter what you're going through, you can still find your deepest satisfaction. And we'll talk about that. What does that mean? What does that look like? How can, I, how can I do that? How can I work through all of that? And see, there is a life liberation, a soul satisfaction, a freedom and a fulfillment in Christ that all the success in this world cannot give you and all the suffering in this world can't take that from you. That's absolutely amazing. And... Um, 
And so that's my job week in and week out is to help you to see that more clearly and to, and to live for his glory because that's the, that's the fully satisfied life. That's the contented life. There's not a more, more contentment that can be found in living your life for his glory. It's absolutely amazing. That's what this Psalm 23 is all about. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want a life without lack, contentment, satisfaction, joy, unspeakable and glorious. That's what he has for us. That's ours through Jesus Christ. Came across an interesting story here. Uh, Eric Raymond in his book, Chasing Contentment, Trusting God in a Discontented Age. Listen to what he, he, he shares here. He says this, uh, early in our marriage, Christy, that was his wife, Christy and I bought our first home. It was a sketchy part of town but it was all we could afford and we made it work. And over the years, we saw a lot of things that made us say, hmm, we should really move. And after having our first daughter, our third child, we prayerfully pursued a move. Our house sold in three days. We quickly found a home in another neighborhood that had fewer police helicopters overhead. Upon moving in, we had an open house and dozens of friends came over. Amid the celebration, I was on my deck with, with a brother in Christ who was about 15 years my senior. And there I stood smiling and reveling in God's goodness under the dark sky and bright decorative outside lights. And my friend smiled wryly and surprised me by asking and He would still be good if he took it all away, right? I almost dropped my drink. My startled look mimicked a Labrador upon hearing a dog whistle. Yes, yes, he would, I replied slowly. Yet I remember thinking, what's with this guy? What a wet blanket. But he wasn't a wet blanket at all. He was a man who had walked through affliction and had come out trusting. Perhaps he sensed that I was sounding a bit too much like a baby with a rattle instead of a Christian content in God. He made his point that night, and more than a dozen years later, he is still making his point to me. So when you live for his glory, that's where you're going to find your deepest satisfaction. And when you find your deepest satisfaction in him, you can do that in good days, bad days, and ugly days. I had a couple last night walking in the uh, hallway here, and they were approaching me, and they, they looked like over the top happy, just happy. And I go, oh, so cool to see you guys so happy. It was one of the elders and his wife. He says, why, I, I know why you're happy, though. And I just said, I know why you're happy. It's because of Jesus. They go, Yes. Jesus, and then they said, they went on to say, uh, yes, he's good, he's good all the time. And a few years ago, I used to, when people would say that, it's like, that sounds so bumper sticker, you know, kind of like that. He's good all the time, yeah, 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 whatever. And uh, that was kind of my attitude, it was really a bad attitude, but but the more I thought about it, the more I realized, yes, he is, he is. Even in the good days, bad days, ugly days, he's always working out. He's always working for your good and his glory. He's all, always looking out for your best interest. Always, always, always. He's good all the time. He's good all the time.
So how do we get that down into our heart? Because I don't, I don't often believe that. I struggle with that. I'm sure you do too. Anybody willing to admit that? So I like saying, yeah. I'm right there with you, Pastor Ray. Okay. So let's, let's look at this next thought here. What is God's abounding grace for my waywardness? Your rod and your staff. Your rod and your staff. Protection, guidance. What does that mean? What is he talking about here? Now remember, I asked you to also uh, to memorize the word contentment or the idea of contentment. We taught this uh, on Easter weekend. We kind of walked through this definition. So here's the definition. Let me remind you of it. Contentment is the inward. It's inside of us. It's not based on our circumstances. I know that's a hard one for us Americans. We tend to build our contentment on the external rather than the internal, but it's in, inward, gracious, something that you can't achieve on your own. You need God's grace. You need God's favor. And I love God's favor for us. He's the one that brings, give, gives us contentment. It's a gift from him. So it's his inward, gracious, quiet spirit. We'll go back to quiet spirit a little bit later on in our study. We'll talk about that. Inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully, that joyfully rest in the presence. I love the presence of God. The presence and the providence of God. Remember that word, providence? What is providence? Here it is. It's on your notes. Next fill in the blank. God's providence is his constant care for an absolute rule over all his creation for his glory and the good of his people. That's from Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, which is really a great book. So God's providence, so you're, you're joyfully resting in the presence of God and the providence of God. Providence of God is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his glory and the good of his people. Now there are three essential truths about God we must believe if we are going to trust him in both good days and bad days and this has to do with his providence. And these are three attributes of God that I keep coming back to. In fact, you hear me repeat these pretty regularly here at Desert Breeze. You need to have these memorized. In fact, when you go through the Lord's Prayer in the morning, you need to be reciting these and reminding yourself of these three attributes. Here's the first one. He's perfect in love. God is perfect in love. Second one, infinite in wisdom. Third one, completely sovereign. Let's kind of walk through each, each of these. So perfect in love. Psalm 103, 11 says his love reaches higher than the heavens. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much he loves us. Think about that. So how high are the heavens above the earth? Anybody? Can you, can you calculate that? So it's saying it's incalculable. It's immeasurable. The God of the galaxies loves you in such a way that it's beyond calculation. And when that gets a hold of you, you aren't the same, believe me. Not just as a concept, oh yeah, I could quote the verse. No, I'm talking about having an experience on your heart. And you'll, be able, you'll begin to say, no one has ever loved me like he loves me and continues to love me. Tells us in Romans 8, it says that in fact, he loves us, his love is so powerful and it's immeasurable, but it's also boundless. In other words, there's nothing that can keep us from his love. Even in the bad days, the hard days, the difficult days, he's still loving you. He still has your best interest at heart. I know it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't look like that. But the Bible's saying nothing can separate you from his love. Absolutely nothing. He's still working. 
He's still working. You just don't have eyes to see. The Bible says you need to have those eyes. Those are spiritual eyes, and the Bible tells us that over and over again, God's infallible word reminding us of his perfect love. And then his, his infinite wisdom. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. It gives us really kind of the same analogy here. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts above our thoughts and his, his ways above our ways. He said, it's, it's immeasurable. I can't figure it out. You're not going to be able to figure it out. You're not smart enough. You can't figure it out. That's what the Bible's saying. I know, I, I realize it. Sometimes we think we're smarter than God. I understand that. And, and, and what we do is oftentimes we live outside the parameters of his word. We don't go back to his word to figure out how we should respond to life. We tend to kind of do it on our own and it gets us into major problems. Oh my goodness. And, and, it's be, and the reason why we do that is because we think we're smarter than him. We don't actually think that by following him we'll be successful and we'll be happy and, and we'll have a sense of meaning. We're, we're going to find it on our own but he's, he's wiser. He's smarter. And then this, is, this next one's going to really trip you up. Somebody is going to really trip you up. He's completely sovereign. Let me just read one verse. You can read a number of other verses. I gave you some more there. What does that mean? Well, this is what it means, Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. What? Yeah. It's called the sovereignty of God. So let me ask you this. I want you to think deep on this. This is, this is heavy, heavy theology here, and, you, and it gives you really a high view of God because that's what you need if you're going to get through the difficulties. People crash and burn because they don't have a high view of God. So you need to know he's perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, unlimited in his power. He's sovereign. He's in control. And the Bible says that over and over and over again. So let me ask you this. What's the wisdom gap? We could say what's the love, wisdom, sovereign gap? between a shepherd and his sheep. But let's just stick to wisdom. What's the wisdom gap? How much smarter is a shepherd than his sheep? Quite a bit. How about this one? What's, what's the wisdom gap between a 40-year-old father and his four-year-old son? I know that sometimes a little four-year-old son would think that dad doesn't love me, makes me brush my teeth, I gotta go to bed early, I want to play video games all day. If he loved me, he'd let me play video games all day. And we all know better than that. Let me ask you this question. This is a hard one. What's the wisdom gap between my wife and I? That was a joke, okay? You guys were supposed to laugh and you didn't laugh very much. And I had a guy last night say, it wasn't very wise of you to even ask that question, so the wisdom gap is vast between your wife and you. Okay, I got it. Okay, okay. You guys are really intent listening to this. Here's, here's the next one. What's the wisdom gap between an infinite God and finite man? That's you and I. What's the wisdom gap? I, I don't know if you've thought of this, but... If his love is higher than the heavens, it's immeasurable. And if his wisdom is the same, and, and he spoke all of this into creation, he took nothing and made something. This is the God of the galaxies. This is the God of the Bible. If he did all of that, he created us. That's beyond our comprehension because God has always existed. He's infinite and he's eternal. That blows our circuits. 
We're finite. We can't understand that. We can't grasp that. That's, a, that's so much of a mystery. You see, us questioning God's ways is like a seven-year-old questioning the mathematical calculations of a world-class physicist. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God would allow something to happen doesn't mean there isn't one. In fact, the Bible tells me, God's infallible word, tells me over and over again, I read it daily, read it week in and week out, I study it, I memorize it, I meditate on it. God's word tells me that that God is at work in the worst of times doing a thousand things that no one can see but him. I love what British philosopher Evelyn Underhill said. She said, a God small enough to be understood will never be big enough to be worshipped. So this is how it works out in our life. This is what you should be thinking about every day that in his perfect love he wants what is best for you in his infinite wisdom he knows exactly what is best for you and his unlimited power his complete sovereignty he's going to do it he's going to do it he's going to fulfill what's in your best interest that's important to always keep in mind If there is a single event, here's your next fill in the blank, if there is a single event in all the universe that can occur outside of God's loving, wise control, then we cannot trust him. If there's one single event that can happen outside of God's loving, wise control, you can't trust him. Oh, I turned my head and you had a car accident and a family member was killed. I'm so sorry, I should have been paying more closer attention. That's not what the Bible says about God. He's loving He's wise and in control. Do I understand it fully? No way. My mind's too small. But I believe it. Why? Because he wrote it down for us in his word, his infallible word. And I've seen him work in people's lives time and time again. I've got 28 years experience doing this, and it's amazing. It's breathtaking to see God's loving, wise control work for their good and his glory. Can you trust God? Look on your notes there. I put a couple questions here. Can you trust, emphasis on trust God? In other words, is God trustworthy? Absolutely, he's trustworthy. Just, just look at his track record in the Bible. But, but here's, the, here's the question that's directed towards you. He may be trustworthy, but can you? Can you trust God? Do you have such a relationship with God that you believe he is who he said he is and will do what he promised to do? Here's what I've learned is that the more I get to know God, the more I trust him. Psalm 9, 9 through 10, I love it. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name, his character, his attributes, that he's perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, unlimited in power, those who know his name will trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. Never, never forsaken those who seek him. Regardless of what it looks like, he will never forsake you. The Bible's clear. He's a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. You need to have a high view of God. See, we cave into the difficulties of life in direct proportion to our low view or high view of God. We need a real healthy theology that's what we're looking at here this weekend. So let me just 
talk just for a minute about those that are getting baptized this weekend so that you kind of understand what they're doing as it relates to trusting God. You can't trust him if you don't know him. Would you agree with that? Can't trust God if you don't know him. A lot of times when people say, I can't trust God, I just say, well, you don't know him. Get to know the object of your, of your trust, of your faith. And um, so you can't trust him if you don't know him. And you can't know him if you don't have a relationship with him. And you're not going to have a relationship with him if you don't spend time with him. You don't get to know him through his word and in prayer. And you need to have a relationship with him. And, and this is what you need to keep in mind. The only way that you can have a relationship with him is through the work of his, his son. Jesus made that very clear. If you're familiar with John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but by me. He didn't say, I'm a way. He says, I am the way. He pretty much eliminated every other way. This is Jesus who proved who he was and proved what he came to do through his death, burial, and resurrection on the third day that he truly is the Son of God. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so it's only through the work of Jesus Christ. And so here's what the Bible does. And the Bible levels the playing field for all of us on this planet Earth and before the cross. As we stand before the cross, the ground is leveled, and it tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fail to see how glorious, how beautiful, how desirable he is. And so what we do, and we're sinners by nature and by choice, what we do is we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. That's Romans 1.25. We all tend to do that. And the Bible tells us that there's wages for our sin. We deserve something from our sin that says in 623 for the wages of sin is what anybody it's death so we know that physical death is when the soul separates from the body spiritual death is when we are separated from God and the Bible says that our sins separate us from God for the wages of sin is death but it doesn't stop there that's an amazing verse but the gift Listen to me, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God, it's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. It's given through Christ. And believe me, when you understand it, it's revolutionary. It transforms your heart. Nothing will transform your heart like that. It's not a morally restrained will that gets you into heaven. It's a supernaturally transformed heart when you put your faith in Jesus. There's a verse that I've been meditating on these last week or so. It's Romans 5, 5, 8, and then 5, 10. 5, 8 goes like this. It says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross died in our place for our sins. And then 10, verse 10 it goes, if while we were enemies, we were enemies to God, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, much more, now that we are reconciled, now that we have relationship with God, the God of the galaxies, shall we be saved by his life? We have relationship with him. We're indwelt by his Holy Spirit. 
And so the gospel isn't, isn't good advice at what you must do to be right with God, but it's good news about what God has done to make us right with him. This is what separates Christianity from every major cult and religion of our world today. Every other major religion and cult, and study it, I, I challenge you, study it out. I've done a lot of studies on this, and every other belief system is about what you must do to be right with God. Christianity is about what has been done for you to be right with God. And so the gospel is the good news, really, really good news, that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life. Yes, praise God. Repent and believe in him and it transforms your life from the inside out. If the gospel message isn't the most amazing message you've ever heard, haven't heard it I pray you do this morning and I pray that it gets a hold of your heart and transforms your life and you will never be the same believe me when you look at the cross the cross is really the center of Christianity when you look at the cross I love these crosses in here, with a cross up there on the wall, right here. Here's what should come to mind. When you look at the cross, this is what should come to mind. I am more sinful than I ever dared to think, but I am more loved than I ever, ever dared to dream. I was so sinful. I was so sinful. Jesus had to die for me. There was no other way. But he loved me so much, he wanted to die for me, in my place, for my sins. And it's revolutionary. So those that are getting baptized here this morning, that's what they're doing. They're identifying with the, it's called substitutionary atonement. That's a big theological word. Atonement means at one minute, at one minute. Actually, you can break the word down and you can see that. At one minute, we've been at one with, Christ, with God through Christ Jesus. We've been brought into this relationship with him because of his work, not our work, so it works like this. So, so I, don't, I don't obey him to get his blessing and to have him accept me. I have his blessing and he accepts me through Christ. Therefore, I obey him because I want to honor him and live for his glory. And it's a work from the inside out. It's breathtaking. It's amazing. I've never gotten over it. And the older I get, the more the more it just carries such glory to me as I live in the reality of that. And those being baptized are, are making that public declaration. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a public declaration, dramatization, demonstration of the fact that you are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that what he did, he did for you, and you received his righteousness, and he took all of your sin, and now you stand before God perfectly righteous, reconciled to the Father through him, and innumerable blessings that come into our life as a result of that. So let's finish up the study here. Let me give you the last. So what difference will this make in my life? If I really believe this idea of the providence of God, the rod and the staff, they comfort me, protection, direction, what difference should this make? 
Well, they should comfort me. I I looked up this word. The Hebrew word for comfort here is not just uh, console oneself, that we're consoled, we're comforted. It's actually much broader, much more depth. It actually means to be sorry, repent, regret, be comforted. So now remember, contentment is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's presence and providence. Remember quiet spirit? We talked about that quiet spirit. So so it creates contentment in you so that you have a quiet spirit. And there's no more bitterness over the past, complaining about the present, or worry about the future because you're, you're trusting his providence. He knows that you, know, you understand his perfect love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power, working for your good and his glory. And so you're resting in that. And so the first thing you're going to do, and that's what this comfort really represents, what difference will it make in my life? I will repent of my times of bitterness, complaining, and worry. Repentance is really a positive thing. We should be repenting every day, and we should be repenting every weekend. See, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. What happens with repentance is you realize, hey, wait a minute, I shouldn't be thinking like that. I need to get on track with my thinking, or I need need to get on track with my behavior. I'm kind of heading off in a bad direction, so you come back to that path and to Christ and to who he is and what he has for you. The goodness of God leads to repentance, Romans 2, 4. And so I repent of my times of bitterness, complaining, worry. See, bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. That's what we're saying. Complaining is believing that God is getting it wrong. Worry is believing that God will get it wrong. Now remember what we said last week, our emotions tell us our values and evaluations. You look at your emotions, and they'll tell you what you really value, the things you get excited about. We'll tell you that's really important to you. It also tells us our evaluations, how we're evaluating life, how we're navigating when we encounter a difficult time in our life. And it's not just sorrowful, but it's despair. It shows me that this thing had a hold on my heart that was more than just a good thing. It was an ultimate thing in my life. And so our emotions tell us our values and evaluations. Our emotions tell us what we really, really believe. See, when we fail to believe that God is for us, will take care of us, has our future in his hands, and is with us right now, we cave into bitterness, complaining, and worry. And so what we do is that we have to repent of, my, of our times of bitterness, complaining, and worry. And we believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. That's what Jesus said in Mark 1.15. When he landed on this earth and as he began to preach the gospel, he said, repent and believe the gospel. 115 of Mark. Repent and believe. Now this is a hard one. This is where we get into some heavy theology here. This is going to spin your head around a little bit. But you've got to hang with me. And believe that historical events are determined by God, divine sovereignty, through my choices, human responsibility. So the Bible teaches both of these. So you've got divine sovereignty, human responsibility. They're like two pedals on a bike. You've got to have both of them. You're not going to get the bike down the road. The Bible is very clear about both of these. In fact, Acts 27, 24 through 32, and I'd encourage you to read this story on your own later on today or sometime this week. It has a great illustration of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man working simultaneously. In Acts 27, Paul is on a boat with sailors and soldiers in a terrible storm. He's headed to Rome for trial. He might possibly lose his life. And during the storm, when everybody, the sailors and soldiers, are frightened that they're going to die, God sends an angel to Paul and says, the ship will be wrecked, but no life will be lost. And so Paul comes out on the deck and says, God has spoken to me, 
And he has said, even though the ship will be wrecked, no life will be lost. That's in verses 24 through 26 of the text, Acts 27. But there's something really peculiar that happens in, in verse 31 of Acts 27. The storm is continuing. The sailors decide, the guys that are sailing the boat, decide they're going to sneak off the boat. So they start to get into the lifeboat when Paul sees the sailors trying to get off the boat. He tells the soldiers to stop them Stop them. They can't do that, he says. If they leave the boat, we're all going to die. Divine sovereignty? Human responsibility. Just because God said, hey, I'm going to get you through this, doesn't mean you just throw in the town and do whatever you want to do. That's the point here. See, if you believe everything is fixed despite our choices, divine sovereignty, you're going to be passive. It's called fatalism. Oh, what's the use? God's going to decide what he wants anyway. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's fatalism. You're just going to be passive. But if you believe your choices actually determine the future, then you should be paralyzed. You're going to be filled up with fear. By the way, this is what drives workaholism, perfectionism, OCDs, people-pleasing, phobias, Fears underneath our fears is we're trying to control the circumstance and we're freaking out about, oh, what are we going to do? And I got to do more. And I... See, that's too heavy emphasis on you're pushing down on the pedal of human responsibility too much. You need to push on the pedal of divine sovereignty a little bit more. You're not going to get that bike down the road. You see, what's interesting with this is that Paul seems to be diligent but calm. Calm in storm and therefore helpful to others. Here's the last point, big point. Therefore, this is what will happen in me. I'll neither be passive nor paranoid. When I go through hard times and difficult times, I'm not gonna be passive or paranoid, but diligently peaceful. I'm gonna work hard, but I'm gonna be peaceful and helpful to others. Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for battle, but victory is in the hands of the Lord. That's what that verse is saying. So, you, so the horse is made ready for battle, human responsibility. Do the best you can. Do the best you can. And then leave the results in God's hands. But victory's in the hands of the Lord. And you rest in him. God, you're calling the shots. You know what's in my best interest. I trust your loving, wise control in my life. I'm gonna rest in you. I'm gonna honor you because I'm gonna be responsible. But at the same time, I'm gonna trust your sovereignty. It's about fearing God. Proverbs 14, 21. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and courage. The fear of the Lord is a, is a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins us for anything else. So next weekend, abounding grace for my brokenness is what we're going to talk about. We'll look at you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. That's where we're headed. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So Father God, even though there are times we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, times of hopelessness, times of despair, times of disillusionment, times of perplexity, our heads are spinning. We will not fear. We will fear no evil because you are with us. And your rod and your staff, they comfort us. They protect us and guide us. Thank you for your providence that you are at work lovingly and skillfully and sovereignly, even in the worst of times, doing a thousand things we can't see with our finite minds. We repent of our bitterness and complaining and worry, and we trust in you with all of our heart. Help us not to lean upon our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you as you direct our paths. And as the hymn goes, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. 
Daily we are constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like a shackle, bind our wandering hearts to thee. And especially to those who are being baptized this weekend, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen.